0: And um, we're going to continue again this week in the book of Philippians. So as I introduce this, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we left off at verse 7 in chapter 4. For context, I'm going to read from verse 4 through 9 to give us context. Before we begin though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for your love, the provision of your word, and the privilege of being able to gather collectively as your children. We thank you for your word, what you do through your word, and may today, Father, that you would illuminate this passage to enable us not only to understand but also to have your grace to apply these truths to our lives. This is a marvelous book that your servant Paul has penned under your inspiration. We pray that you'd be glorified as we teach this portion today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, at first I was prepared to do a, more of an overview because... Uh, some of the youth we're supposed to attend, but there's also a winter camp this morning, so there's some different uh, plans. But this morning, I would still like to give us a little bit of overview of what we have looked at thus far in the book of Philippians. To start out with, we know that Paul was writing while he was incarcerated in prison under house arrest in Rome. As he was there, he was also able to minister to the praetorian guards, some of which turned to Christ, and then which had an effect in the whole household of Caesar. So we know the essence of what Paul has done. He has expressed his love for the Philippian saints and how dear they were to him and how important. He also informed them about the grave illness that Epaphroditus had as he made the journey there and before he returned, and he expressed his thanks for what God was doing in them because they were continuing to perpetuate the gospel. Also, in essence of what they were doing, in philippi they were being attacked by false teachers so he gives them warning in chapter 3 but before that in chapter 2 he gives us the understanding of the incarnation of jesus christ and the humility that christ showed in his earthly ministry his death and the example that Paul uses is the preeminent example of Christ himself for our humility. So as he continues in chapter 4, he corrected or asked for a correction for two that were having a bit of a conflict, uh, Iodia and Syntyche. But then he goes on to express the importance of Christian conduct and what that means, and how that is lived out. But he also gives us an understanding of how to give our cares anxieties to him. He wants us to be having the peace of God in us. We already have peace with God through Christ and his imputed righteousness, and Paul clearly shows us that In Romans chapter 5. As we look at this text, I'll begin in verse 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a great encouragement and exhortation that is for us to be able to cast our cares upon him, which is a parallel to what Peter said in his epistle, but also knowing that we receive the peace of God. And Paul wants to continue in this and showing the importance of our thought life. Our thought life will affect our whole conduct. And so Paul addresses that area and he begins with this in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in my practice, these things. And the God of peace... Will be with you. Now, Paul was uh, giving them a very important understanding of how to keep our thought life where God can work through us. The word finally here indicates that Paul is summarizing this whole exhortation regarding our spiritual stability. And this summation that he gives us, we can implement. The truths from four through seven, now our thoughts. He is raising up to elevate our thoughts. The commentator, John Stott, made this statement. Begin, <clears throat> quote, He's, Indeed, sin has more dangerous effects on our faculty or feeling than our faculty of thinking. Because our opinions are more easily checked and regulated by revealed truth than our experiences. And throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we're called upon to reason, to think through in Isaiah one verse eighteen, then Second Timothy, uh, we're given the commandment of being diligent to present ourselves approved. To God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So we're to elevate our thoughts, study God's word, and keep his word preeminent in our hearts. The command given to the believers requires that we diligently study, rightly divide God's word and practice the truths which God commands us to obey. All believers are given God's Holy Spirit and we're given His Word. His Word will enable us to teach, reprove, correct, train in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In our Christian conduct... The author James Orr expresses this in the importance of our thinking. He says if there is a religion in the world which exalts the office of teaching or teaching teacher, it is safe to say that there is the religion of Jesus Christ. It has been frequently remarked that in pagan societies and religions, the doctrinal element is at a minimum. The chief thing there is the performance of a ritual. But this is precisely where Christianity distinguishes itself from other religions that do not contain doctrine. It comes to men with definite positive teaching. I do not see how anyone can deal fairly with the facts as they lie before us in the Gospels and the epistles, without coming to the conclusion that the New Testament is full of doctrine. A religion divorced from earnest and lofty thought has always, throughout the whole church history, tended to become weak, and its satisfaction is without, that is, outwardly, without doctrine, and developed into godless, <coughs> Rationalization, excuse me. So, the importance there of emphasis on doctrine in a day where that's thought to be divisive, so that's be tempted when we teach the word. Rather than that, God calls us to teach the word, to meditate on the word, to study his word, and to practice it. So, it's just the antithesis of the worldly philosophy that's entered some of the universal churches. Yes, Peter. Where was that quote from? That quote was from um, the book, The Christian View of God. And it was from James Orr. James Orr? Yes. The scriptures teach us that people's lives are the product of their thoughts. Solomon emphasized this in Proverbs 23, 7, where he said this, For as a man thinks within himself, so is he. So our thoughts govern our behavior. The Lord, in a parallel teaching in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 7, says this, That which proceeds out of the mouth of man, that which defiles the man from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. So the understanding of our thoughts can dictate our behavior and conduct. In our present text, the apostle gives us clear imperatives. This is command form. Our thoughts impact our Christian walk. So we might ask, well, why why is it that Paul is putting this in a command form? Why isn't he just given them uh, instruction without the imperative. Well, during this period, we must remember, uh, this was written about 60 AD, even then there were attacks against the doctrines of the Christian faith, attacks against Christ, attacks against his resurrection, attacks against Christianity itself. And... Being in the Roman Empire, these Philippians lived in a corrupt society, much to the parallel of our current society. We live in a culture where there's no absolutes. The postmodern philosophy has even affected some of the evangelical churches today. The focus on philosophy rather than scripture has influenced these types of churches. It's not to say that there aren't believers that attend some of these churches that lack sound doctrine, but they aren't being equipped. They aren't growing in their understanding and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The contemporary philosophy of pragmatism has caused some of those in the universal church to place the emphasis on the concept of truth be in whatever works to produce a good result rather than the divine word of God. The antithesis of of that is, of course, the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether or not they were true. Unfortunately, there are many today in the universal church who attend Sunday morning services for the purpose of getting their weekly spiritual high. And another author wrote in the book called Right Thinking, he says this, what scares me in the anti-intellectual and anti-critical thinking philosophy That has spilled over into the church. This philosophy tends to romanticize the faith, making the local church into an experience center. Their concept of church is that they are spiritual consumers and that it is the church's job to meet their felt needs. So I could go on and on with various quotes from Christian. Reform scholars, and also from many solid Christian theologians. The first element in salvation is proper cognitive understanding, our thinking and understanding of what the gospel is. Peter admonished Christians in this way but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. As Christians, we have to be able to articulate the gospel. We're called to share the gospel when God gives us opportunity. So to do so, we have to have a clear understanding of all that the gospel represents, clear understanding of Christology, the understanding of Christ, clear understanding of homardiology, the understanding of man's sinfulness. We have to a, have, have a clear understanding of the need for our salvation before we can offer what Christ has provided in the way of our salvation. <clears throat> what the Holy Spirit does in new birth is not to make a Christian regardless of the evidence, but contrary, to clear away the myths from his eyes and enabled him to attend to the evidence. That was a quote from John MacArthur on his commentary of Philippians. God saves people to worship him and serve him and to glorify him. In John 4, 24... The apostle says this, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This was what God commanded in this gospel of John. The spirit in this verse, when he said we must worship in spirit and truth, is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit of man. And the truth there is that of God's word. The psalmist proclaimed this in Psalm 119. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. In Psalm 119, verse 34. So as we begin in verse 8, Paul says this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. So we have to understand what Paul's referring to when he says true. So true... Is or whatever is true, means that our reading and studying of God's word and also meditating on it so that we may practice it. All the remaining virtues here that he lists are based upon God's word. So it isn't just some philosophical thought life. It's that of meditating on the true word of God. In the second virtue, Paul says, whatever is honorable. The meaning of honorable is noble or dignified or worthy of respect. From the original word, simnos, which has the meaning to reserve or revere, to worship. It's uh, used in another portion of the New Testament in 1 Timothy, when Timothy was being instructed on how to recognize and appoint elders as well as deacons. And then he says this, women must likewise be dignified. That's the same word that's used for honorable, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Referring to old men in second, uh, Titus 2, verse 2, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. So the word dignified there is uh, the same word, comes from the same origin, and it means honorable. The third virtue Paul lifts up here is whatever is right. The word right is an adjective and should be translated actually righteous in the original. It is translated in the original as righteousness. The word right describes whatever is in harmony with God's word. So as we look at God's word, we know that we can have righteous thoughts regarding maintaining that thought life in our heart. The fourth virtue... Paul lists whatever is pure. Uh, this comes from the word hagnos, which describes what God defines in his word as holy or morally clean and undefiled. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, said this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he, God, is pure. That's in first John three verse three <clears throat> Believers are to purify themselves as Christ is pure. This brought about uh, is brought about, I should say, through regular repentance and confessing our sins on a regular basis and pursuing holiness. He goes on to say in the fifth virtue, whatever is lovely. The word lovely comes from the word prosphiles, which I shouldn't try to pronounce the Greek words. But it it appears here in the New Testament only, no other place. It could also be translated sweet, gracious, generous, or patient. Believers are called to focus their thoughts on what the Bible says is pleasing, attractive, amiable before God. And then our sixth virtue, Paul says this, whatever is of good repute. I often wondered whether that was a word that paralleled good report, but it comes from the original word, which is only used here and nowhere else in the New Testament. It describes that which is highly regarded for good thoughts. Believers' thoughts are always elevated by keeping their thoughts fixed on God's Word. So the good repute is that of the focus on God's divine Word. It elevates our thoughts. We can't go through a day without seeing or having some kind of thought that we shouldn't have that would affect our Christian walk. And this is why Paul is directing this so clearly and breaking down each virtuous thought that we are to focus on. And it's the thoughts that keep our minds in a place where God can work through us in our conduct. Paul then summarizes this exhortation with all these virtues that we focus on and he says this if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things in order to have godly thinking so as we think of the word dwell it does come from the word logizomai that means to evaluate to calculate and habitual disciplines of our minds. So this gives us the fuller understanding of how our focus has to be. You know, it isn't that we don't have concern from somebody, but remember back in six chap- uh, verse 6 of this chapter and 7, our care, our concern for somebody should not turn to anxiety where we're overcome to the point of being debilitated. And we're able to give those to God in prayer with thanksgiving. The Proverbs, once again, gives us a very strong admonition in this area. He says this in chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over your hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. I think the King James uh, says guard your hearts with all diligence for out of it flow the springs of life. So we have to understand we are to take guard over our hearts. We are to be careful of our thoughts. And to do so, we have to constantly be aware of the importance of this and the consequences if we don't. That is having thought life that would impair our Christian walk in our conduct now the apostle in uh, <clears throat> as he continues says that <clears throat> the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the god of peace will be with you so now the apostle himself is trying to use his walk and his life as an empirical model for them to follow. Now, the Philippians knew Paul. They loved Paul, and they knew the life that he lived. They knew it was sacrificial. They knew he was pouring out his life for Christ. He was going every city that he could to proclaim the gospel, but he also lived out what he preached. He was a living model. Aside from Christ, there was probably no greater example than Paul. And so he could use that knowing that it wasn't him because he'd already told us that in chapter 2. It's God working in us to enable us to do his will. And it's not us. So all the glory Paul gave to God. So he could say this without pride, but rather recognition of what God can do in a man who was persecuting the church, trying to slaughter Christians, and God turned him around, brought him to repentance and salvation. So he could be an example. We should try to emulate Paul's example, or first of all, Christ's example, in our lives. And when we fail, we repent and be, continue to pursue holiness. <clears throat> we cannot think of these principles simply as just doctrinal truths, but also we have to implement these in our lives. These are things that Paul instructs us to do under God's inspiration. <clears throat> Paul says this in Colossians 3, Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse clearly instructs us and all believers that allowing God's word to permeate our minds, our hearts will affect us in a way that glorifies him. He wants us to be able to walk in the spirit as he instructed the Galatians in chapter five. That is being under God's holy influence and allowing him to work in and through us so that the Holy spirit is governing our thoughts. In the second part of this verse, he said, uh, practice these things. The word practice carries the idea of continual repetitive action, ongoing. So he wants us to continue this, not just to look at this text, say, well, I understand some of these words now, but to understand that we are to implement these truths in our lives on a regular basis. It's our daily life call. Believers can only live out a life of holiness by continual prayerful study of God's word and being led by God's spirit. David, writing this in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, instructs God's people in this way. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This gives us a summation of God's word and what that does. And the psalmist clearly brought forth that truth. The law in this teaching uh, means, the word law in that verse means teaching. Testimony comes from the word that bears witness. Commandment means to command or order. Judgments convey the judicial decisions that God makes through his word. Paul goes on in verse 9 said, The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. The apostle not only penned the scriptures under the inspiration of God's Spirit, but he also, <clears throat> prior to completing the New Testament, the apostles were the only source of divine truth. After they completed the New Testament, the believers had God's word. But at this time, the apostles... Were the examples, they're the only ones that could proclaim the doctrines of Christ. After Pentecost, the believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, Acts 2.42. So once they received Christ, they were continuing to follow the apostles' teachings. They were trying, by God's grace, to obey. And the church flourished in the first century. The apostles not only taught doctrine, but they were also an example wherever they ministered. This is why the apostle could write, the things learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. Can we say that? That's what we need to be able to do. The Apostle Paul not only taught divine truth, he lived divine truth in his life daily. The things you have learned. The word learned translates from a word which comes from a related noun. The word refers to teaching, learning, instructing, and discipling. That's a huge part of each Christian's ministry. Not only proclaiming the gospel, but also coming alongside and discipling them, enabling them to understand and grow in Christ and being a a disciple, receiving the teaching. As Christians, we all have that responsibility, men for men and women for women. So as we go forth and we have opportunity to share the gospel with someone, then we also have the responsibility to follow through with continual discipleship. Paul uses the same word in... Excuse me. The next word, received, comes from the original word, which is sometimes used in the New Testament as a technical term for God's revelation. Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians 15. He said this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. That is, they responded in faith, so it was an effectual calling, and they were able to understand, repent, and turn to Christ for salvation. So they had received the gospel. Paul wanted his instruction to influence their conduct and help them grow in their faith. In verses 8 through 9, he carried out this in a practical way of helping us what our focus should be, to understand these are the virtuous things that we focus our thoughts on. Paul's instruction on their conduct and faith and practice can be carried out in a practical way in each Christian's life. So Paul also wanted these believers to able, to be able to pass these truths on. He wanted them to emulate and practice what he taught in 2 Timothy 2.2. In 2 Timothy, Paul was addressing Timothy in this way, and he said, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these faithful men <clears throat> to faithful men who will be able to teach others so the things we learn we can pass on to others in the form of discipleship so paul is giving the philippians the same essence of teaching that he did so with timothy and he goes on to say, the things you've heard, Paul's reputation throughout the church in Philippi was an example that could be observed by all. Many of them, after Paul was in prison that came to know Christ, didn't know Paul personally. But his reputation stood. Those that did know him were able to encourage the other believers as to Paul living out and being a living example of what a Christian should be in their lives. The next one is seen. Those who had actually seen Paul's witness in their lives, these saints were able to bear witness of Paul's faith. The reputation was remarkable. And he gives this uh, admonition we have from James and he goes like this in chapter three, he gives an admonition about teaching. He said, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. So God does want teachers within the body of Christ, but he wants them to do so recognizes not only responsibility, but the accountability. So Paul wanted these that were able to teach, to do so with a good conscience. So believers are to teach and preach God's word, and there's a strict accountability accountability as they do so. Paul goes on and he says this, The God of peace will be with you. The commands that Paul has given in this passage also come with a promise. The promise is this, the God of peace will be with us. Now, we've already made peace with God through salvation. We're at enmity with God before salvation, but as Romans 5 states, we are now at peace with God. But we also have, as Philippians verse 6 says, we have the peace of God from God. So Paul is just reiterating this statement. He said, the peace of God will be with you. God is God of of peace. He's also a just God. It is God in us who provides peace and contentment for his children. So as we read this, this is not only uh, a strong admonition for us, but it's also A strong encouragement. It isn't something that's just academic. This is a practical teaching on behavior and conduct in the Christian life. And the importance of that starts with our thinking. Our thinking should emulate what God gives in his word by his grace. So I'll close with the encouragement that we have for the peace of God to be ruling our hearts. So let's close and thank the Lord for what he has done. Father, we do thank you. And Father, we praise you for the peace that you provide for us as we continually to stay in a right relationship with you. As we daily pray, as we daily repent as needed, as we daily spend time in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to transform and renew our minds with your very word. We thank you now and ask that you would be glorified as we continue in this collective worship to glorify you, that you will be glorified through the teaching and through the praise and songs and hymns that we collectively offer up to you. May you be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.